We interrupt our program to bring you this important message. So you starting your normal day uh, on the job, walking the yard, doing your thing, doing your checks, things that you're seeing. Uh, walk me through what that's like, a, a normal or not even normal, just a day like when you've got to get on the block or the yard and do your thing. All right, man. Since times have changed and we're now in 2024, I'm going to have to take you back to 2008 time frame, man, just because that was when it was really spicy. Okay. Uh, young correctional officer, Sentinella State Prison, Charlie Yard Level 4 GP, which is our max security. Man, there's a, there's a gate to enter the yard. Soon as you hit that gate, man, the hairs on their neck stand up, man, because you can feel the different vibe, man. At that point in time, you had every Mexican mafia member, every area brotherhood member, Nuestra Familia and Black Gorilla family member in Pelican Bay Shoe or Corcoran mm -hmm. Shoe, the uh, security housing unit. So basically what you had was the soldiers on the yard, on the main lines. And they're all taking orders from their bosses, man, through little kites, through little notes. And during that time frame, it was uh, blue versus green. The inmates wore blue attire, and the staff members wore green jumpsuit, green uniform. And you can feel the tension, bro. Depending on what was going on at the time, if there had been a recent staff assault, meaning the inmates had attacked the guards, the officers, um, it was always tense extremely tense mm -hmm. we have a job to do right uh, prevent contraband from coming in prevent inmates from selling dope stabbing each other killing each other and quell riots but uh you kind of just it's kind of a waiting game man sometimes you can feel it in the air when there's tension when something's about to kick off and i'm talking about 100 inmates versus another 100 inmates uh mm. different race different race uh, ethics fighting each other blacks versus mm -hmm. mexicans uh, whites versus Mexicans. And um, yeah, bro, when it kicks off, it's fucking go time. So why so why do you think that those organizations have stayed the way they've been, like along those racial boundaries or racial lines? California moves different, bro. Um, mm -hmm. and, I, and, and Definitely. And it's not a bad thing that the inmates racially segregate themselves. Again, I say the inmates. It's mm -hmm. not... It is not the officers telling you them, hey, man, you're a white guy. You must sit at this white table, mm -hmm. this table specifically designed for the whites. No, they do it amongst themselves as a form of protection and as a form of security. That way they don't get victimized by other races. Mm -hmm. um, and that way, security wise, let's say you have a group of Southern Hispanics, Sureños. Mm -hmm. You have a black inmate walk in what they considered a, a, a non-designated area, their designated area, their, their antennas would go up. You know what I mean? Like, hey, mm -hmm. this something something's about to happen. He shouldn't be here. So it kind of gives them a, go, a heads up like, hey, man, time to kick it off. Yeah. So just a just an easy way in, in their minds to assess a threat. Yes. Yeah. So it's interesting because what happens in prison often is mimicked on the street 
but we're also seeing as street gangs, not prison gangs, but street gangs are spreading. They started out that way. Like, you know, gangs would say, Oh, only, only white males, only black males or only, you know, Hispanic males. And, and then now we're seeing a lot of gangs moving to open enrollment, but then when they get locked up, it's like they go back into that self-segregation mode. You know what I mean? Like, so it's, it's interesting that that still is going on in the prisons and whether it's true or not, you know what I mean? Like if, if they're doing a self-evaluation and they're looking around going, can I truly trust someone just based on their pigment or where they grew up or whatever, or is this really uh, like a legit threat for them? Like, so, like, are they true believers? In other words, when they're in there like, yeah, this is sh- straight up. Like, this is the truth. Like I have to segregate myself just based off of this. So the segregate, the racial segregation in prison is way more uh, prominent than in the streets, man. Because, mm-hmm. you know, in the streets, everybody is free to mingle with whoever they want. No harm, no yeah. foul. Mm-hmm. Um, and in prison, just so you understand, it's not a, racial thing meaning racism it's not Mm -hmm. a racist thing uh it's not man it's more for like i said protection for them to identify (laughs) uh somebody else that doesn't belong to their collective Mm -hmm. um here's the catch here's the catch and other other former inmates have said this on their youtube channels you are probably and not probably, you're like 100 times more uh, susceptible to being a victim by your own race than an op- mm-hmm. than the opposite race. That's the truth because, you know, they cl- as you know, they clean house. They stab each other. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that's that's that was why I asked the question because I've had like an informant I worked for many years and, and he was in a blood set and it's here in the South and I won't bore everybody, but that was one of the things that he kept saying. I'm like, well, one of your rules, one of your, you know, 31 rules that no whites allow. Why is that? And so he was like, man, everybody knows that white guys are snitches, but he's been working for me as an informant for many years, you know? So it was like one of these things where I had to kind of bring it to his attention. Like what you just said doesn't even make any sense, you know, but either way, it's one of those things that people are, are always asking a whole lot of questions about what goes on in prison. I have to tell them like, I, I didn't work in the prisons, but I know someone who did. And so I've worked to get you on the show here. And for the listeners, uh, the voice you're hearing is Hector Bravo, many, many years, uh, behind the wall as a corrections officer in California. We're going to get into all of that. We're going to get into some other stuff. He and I share some of the same things in our background, which is my, my common theme of like, sometimes the people excel in these types of fields, come from backgrounds that are skating music, you know, maybe even a little trouble with the law when they're younger and stuff like that. Um, and then what, what they kind of transition and go through. So we got Hector Bravo here. If you don't mind, tell me a little bit about what you've got going on. Cause I know you got Instagram. That's how I connected to you, but what, what other things have you got social media wise podcast wise? Like what have you got going on? I like how you said that, man, that we all have like a common background. It's the truth, man. Like uh, mm-hmm. Ed Calderon, skater. You yeah. know, I was a skater. I mean, there's something about, you know, even even the youth that join gangs, man. And like I said, I, I'm well more uh, mentally developed and emotionally developed now to understand that these young criminals, these young mm-hmm. gang members, it's what it is. It's youth, youth with testosterone, 
trying to exert that energy, trying to exert that, right? It's just they're caught up in that in that environment, right? You mm-hmm. reap what you sow, you live by the sword, you die by the sword. You and I, we join the military, right? It's like, mm-hmm. hey, that fork in the road, man. Yeah. And um, yeah, dude. So I dare every lesson in I learned in life, I learned the hard way. Okay, so mm-hmm. what I currently got going on is my YouTube channel, That Prison Guard, which I started a little over a year ago. And I started to do that to t- kind of just gather people like us, man, people with the same mindset. People are tired of the BS. People are tired of the fighting at the lower levels and mm-hmm. just are not really happy. <laughs> I'm not a political channel, by the way. Right. I'm a, I'm a realist. I'm, <laughs> yeah. I'm a realist, but yeah. Yeah. I'll be happy, man. I, I, I sat back quietly for far too long, and I don't like the direction that this country went to. Yeah. So people got people can catch you on YouTube yeah. uh, on Instagram and you're doing the podcast circuit, like you said, mm-hmm. with Ed, Ed Calderon, his his podcast, Ed's Manifesto. The thing that that I always look for when I have a guest is like I, there are people that I love just talking to. And I've always enjoyed that. And police work kind of gave me that opportunity. Man, it could be four o'clock in the morning. I just roll up and talk to a dude who's 70 years old. I got no idea why he's in my city or why he's sitting on a curb at seven, you know, or, or whatever, four in the morning. And he may tell me about how he played, you know, guitar in a band called the Drifters for years, you know. And I'm just like, man, like, yeah. so you find these these fascinating people in my world anyway that that I'm always interested in talking to. So that's the thing too when when I have guests and so when I started uh, following you and, and listening to what you have going on, I'm like, I I know I harp on it, but it's that common thread. So walk us back, man, if you can, to when you were a kid, when you were skating, what life was like before you entered the military. Yeah, bro. I was definitely a different person before I entered the military, man. I was your happy-go-lucky, naive. The uh, blinders were definitely on. I was innocent, okay? I was innocent Mm -hmm. as far as the word innocence goes. Mm -hmm. Um, uh, Skater. Started like my sophomore year in high school. Could have been freshman, but you know, like the beginning high school. Uh, my first deck was a Rodney Mullen. Fucking loved Rodney Mullen, bro. Um, yes. Had that. Uh, I got into the whole shorties, uh, mm-hmm. Zero. Oh, man. Andrew Reynolds. All those good. Hey, dude. All the good fucking misled youth. Welcome to hell was the first skate video I've ever seen on the VHS. <laughs> right? Because I was born in 1984. So, like, mm-hmm. that's the time frame, right? Before cell phones, before iPads, before the whole nine. Yeah. And um, skating with my friends, bro, in Brawley, California. It's just not getting into trouble, right? Not I, I was never a troublemaker. Definitely, mm-hmm. mischief, definitely mischievous. Kind of maybe along the lines of curiosity, kill the cat type of uh, mentality. Mm -hmm. Uh, You know, jumping over fences to go into the schools at night, skating on top of the tables, waxing curves, waxing handrails, throwing tricks down staircases or loading docks or warehouses. Like, bro, it was cool, man. Sometimes we would bring like a, a, a light. And then I remember my friend, he was rich, bro. So he had a backpack, the Osiris backpack with the speakers in it. We would have played Disturbed. (laughs) <laughs> and like, dude, we were skating. Um, yeah. But I knew that a graduation would be in 2002, right? It was coming on the horizon. Mm-hmm. And I, I'm from a small town called Brawley, California, which is in Southern California. Mm-hmm. And I knew that if I didn't get out of that town, I was going to get in trouble. Right? There's a lot of drugs in that town. There's a lot of alcohol. 
I mean, I don't know how much you can cuss in this show, but speak freely, dude. Hey, drink, fight, fuck, bro. Mm -hmm. That's kind of what there is to do there, man. And career day, junior year, a Marine Corps recruiter came in for dressed in his whole uniform, and the light bulb went off, man. He's mm -hmm. uh this was before 9-11. Mm -hmm. like hey man you join the military you get the badges you get college paid for you travel the world and boom there it was came home long story short i ended up going to the army infantry right mm -hmm. uh, so told my sister i'm joining the army she's like oh hell yeah <laughs> so i enlisted in the delayed entry program da uh, the dep so i was 17 years old my parents signed the waiver and then 9-11 happened, bro. I was a senior mm. in high school. And I knew what time it was, man. I knew we were going to war. Everybody knew we were going to war. Mm -hmm. Um, Fort Benning, Georgia, dude. July 2002. Middle of the summer. Get there at like 10 o'clock at night. I get off. I'm drenched in sweat. Wondering what the hell is this? 90% humidity. I'm like, <laughs> I never experienced this in my life. <laughs> yeah. Drill yeah. sergeants. Hey, man. You're going to be a killer. Kill, kill, kill. You're going to war. We're going to war, right? There is no ifs and what's or buts about it. We had already invaded Afghanistan, um, okay. but Iraq was, you know, I went to basic training in 2002. The invasion of Iraq was in 2003. Mm -hmm. I found myself in Iraq in 2004 mm. with the 1st Infantry Division based out of uh, Schweinfurt, Germany. That was the beginning of the insurgency, the guerrilla warfare. 13 mm. months deployment. <laughs> roadside bombs ieds incoming mortars rockets ambushes people pop shots and running away oh my goodness car bombs the v-bids the vehicle born ieds it's like hey that war like progressed man as these guys were catching on they were just getting gnarlier with it uh and then like i said man i used to be an innocent kid mm-hmm and then I just seen a lot of people die, man. A lot of people die. A lot of brains, a lot of guts, a lot of uh, trauma, a lot of... Um... My buddy was killed. He was our medic. He was killed on September 10th, 2004, which fell on my mom's birthday. Mm. That wrecked me, bro. That took, That is by far the worst day of my life since then. Um, I just visited his gravesite in Riverside, um national cemetery which that brings me some comfort that brings me some mm -hmm. you know it's almost like i get to speak with him um but the day that he was killed and the day that i saw his dead body on the road uh my innocence was shattered the whole misconception of good things happen to good people bad things happen to bad people was instantly shattered bro mm -hmm. the, the blinders were up i saw how evil the world could be i say could be because i'm hopeful bro mm -hmm. um and then i came back and i dealt with some demons bro in 2005 substance abuse uh, alcoholism drug usage and uh undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder man it, it got fucking dark and when when you were coming back like that and and i know every era changes in the army and especially like with the infantry and and people learn and adapt and try to get services. But was it one of those things where people were even talking about it then? Like, look, when you get back, just know that, that no one's going to measure up, you know, around your, your peers, you're, you're kind of always going to be assessing things 
and reflecting back on what you've just experienced. And then the whole idea that, that alcohol is used, you know, in celebration and things like that when we're younger, but then as we get older and we experience these traumas, it begins to be used almost as a, a numbing agent. But I didn't know if people ever even talked about that at that era when you were getting out. So this was 2004. Mm -hmm. young, young men are stubborn. Mm -hmm. Mexican men are stubborn and machismo, mm -hmm. you know? Mm -hmm. Grunts in the army are fucking stubborn, bro. So I had all the odds against me as far as uh, I think I'm a tough guy. Or my definition of a tough guy at that time was you shut up and put up and you put out work, right? You mm -hmm. don't you don't show emotion because emotion equals weakness and weakness will get you killed. Mm -hmm. That that conception. So right before we left, right before we got out of the country of Iraq, we were in the nursing area, the med medical area, and there was a psychologist type of person, a female, and our sergeant got us in our platoon. And told us, hey, man, this person's going to ask you a list of questions. The faster that you answer no, the faster that we're going to get out of here. Copy that. Mm -hmm. So she asked, did you ever kill anybody? No. Did you ever watch any American troops die? No. Did you ever watch any civilians die? No. Did you ever watch any uh, civilians wounded? No. <laughs> we mm -hmm. all said no, bro. We all lied. We all got the hell out of that country. When we touched down in uh, Germany, they gave us our 30 day leave, a block leave after our deployment to go, you know, see our family for, and they, they were inside of a, we're on con barracks in Schweinfurt, Germany in a, in an airplane hangar. There's, mm -hmm. there's, there's chairs, there's rows of soldiers from all different MOSs and all different units. There's like a Lieutenant Colonel at the front. And this is the only thing he said, bro. When you get home, do not drink and drive. Do not beat your wife. And if you hear loud explosions, you may get startled. Have a good day. And we were yeah. gone, bro. So when I tell you that I was suffering, suffering, bro, mm -hmm. it was dark, bro. I didn't, and I forgot to mention, I'm an alcoholic. I am an alcoholic by definition. So with that, you know, post-traumatic stress disorder and my disease of alcoholism, oh, bro, it was like pouring gasoline on a fire. It was like mm -hmm. throwing a bomb in a fire. I was self-medicating. And what I, and I was spiraling out of control. My everybody, my parents were highly concerned. They would eventually kick me out of their home because they couldn't, you know, handle it anymore. Mm -hmm. And um, all I kept saying was, "I'm just making up for lost time. I'm just making up for the year that I was in Iraq. I'm young. I'm 20 years old because I came back at 20 years old. Every 20 year old drinks. I'm no different than every other 20 year old. But the truth mm -hmm. of the matter is, oh no, dude, it was out of fucking control." Yeah. And I, and I say, yeah, only because I've seen it over decades. Uh, I still talk to guys who were battling the alcoholism, the idea that they could start out at 18 to 20 to 21 in an infantry platoon and everybody's getting drunk and everything's okay until 20 years down the road or even sometimes two or three years down the road. It's not. And it is tough. And we know this in both of our worlds, like while I was on the street, I saw it, you saw it, you know, behind the wall where alcohol, drug use can contribute to people making horrible mistakes and then they get locked up Facts. and then now they got to serve time Facts. and they're trying, you know, they're trying to process, man, I messed up. Like I screw up, you know, now I've got to serve 
five, 10, 15 years for an assault, a stabbing, a shooting that I did when I was out of my mind, either on drugs or alcohol. And while they're trying to process that, they also have to survive, you know, being in, being in that environment where everybody's plotting on everybody. And so guys, I've always talked to like, when you go in, you got to flip that switch. And it's almost like you put out the exterior. Don't mess with me. I'm trying to do my time. You know, I'm not going to mess with you. You don't mess with me. Internally, they're also trying to process when I get out and, and with that mindset of when I get out and I'm going to get out, I'm getting back to, you know, my family or my loved ones. I'm going to stay clean, you know, sober up. Sadly, that's not always the case, but it's but it's tough seeing that. Were you able when you were in to actually be able to assess an inmate and kind of know, OK, this person's going through a lot just by even man, just by their facial expressions and micro expressions, or maybe even they confide in you and say, Hey, look, this is what I got going on. Like, did, did you have some discussions like that? Not early on because, you know, you, anytime you're in a new environment, you have to learn that environment. Mm -hmm. right? um, so not early on. It's just like, Hey man, everything is all the same. Every mm -hmm. inmate to me is all the same, right? They're all capable of hurting and killing me. And in a way that's a good mindset you have because it'll keep you alive. Mm -hmm. Um, but it's a catch 22 and I'll go, I'll dive into how I'll dive into how, as my years progressed. So right now I have 13 years of sobriety. I'm, I'm going to go just dive into it now. Good. So deal. yeah, I, I did not get sober until the year 2010. Oh, okay. Yeah. Um, I right now have 13 years of sobriety. I joined the California department of corrections in 2006. So I had about good three years while I was still drinking alcohol. <laughs> Right. I wasn't doing drugs. I was a peace sworn peace officer, but I was drinking alcohol and, and I had undiagnosed post-traumatic stress disorder. I had not sought the treatment yet. So mm -hmm. basically, I'm not good to nobody because on the outside, it looks like, you know, I got the career. I got the girl. I got the house, the truck. But in the inside, bro, I'm fucking battling demons. Well. Fuck, man, I, I, I've totaled my truck in 2010, bro. It fucking totally. I should have died and I didn't die, man. And that was my wake up call. That was my bottom. Mm -hmm. That's mm -hmm. when I sought out help at the VA. That was the most courageous thing I ever did, bro. Walk into the VA hospital in La Jolla and in the emergency room and say, I need help. And it, and it took mm -hmm. everything I had, bro. And like I said, I've had over, over 12 near-death experiences, bro, where I should be dead right now, man. I'm talking about combat near-death experiences after I came back with all my shenanigans. So once I started to work on myself, on my alcoholism and post-traumatic stress disorder, I started to unravel that baggage, right? I started to understand that I wasn't crazy, that my, the brain is a wonderful, beautiful thing, and it rewires itself in order mm -hmm. to protect you. Mm -hmm. So I had to learn how to unwire, bro. It's like, you know, kind of be, being, a, it's kind of like learning all over again, man. Um, because at the time, I didn't have emotions. Every emotion went to rage, anger. And it was because of that, that, you know, I was able to survive Iraq. However, you come back home and that's definitely not a productive or healthy thing man you start scaring your girlfriend you start scaring your parents right when you flip out start kicking in doors in the house people wonder what the hell's wrong with you mm -hmm. so as i got sober and i 
went through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, which I still am, right? It's been, I, I have to work this program every single day so that I don't revert back to where I was. I was able to I learn emotions, happiness, sadness, anger. Uh, I was able to, this, was, this took me about freaking 10 years to learn how to respond to things instead of react to things. Um, then I promoted to the rank of sergeant at the prison. So now I'm in the supervisor role. Then I promoted to lieutenant. Oh, yeah, I forgot to mention that. Once mm. I got sober, good things in my life started to happen. <laughs> Crazy <laughs> how that happens, right? Imagine that. Yeah. So then, also, imagine that once you go higher up in rank, you know, the inmates tend to be a little nicer to you, man. It's just something that I observed, <laughs> yeah. right? Yeah. They weren't yeah. telling me to fuck off and get the fuck out of my face, like in the housing unit. They're like, hey, good morning, LT. Good morning, Lieutenant. Like, hey, <laughs> yeah. I knew it. I'm like, hey, what's up, man? Good morning. All right, so the, yeah. communi the communication skills evolved. The uh, emotional intelligence, the EI mm -hmm. evolved. Um, my sobriety, my willingness to help other people, my empathy, right? Not sympathy, but empathy. Mm -hmm. And at that point, bro, I literally had nothing to prove, right? To me, I had already proven myself in Iraq. I definitely proved myself as a young correctional officer in that one prison, right? Uh, getting into incidents with inmates, riots, and all of the above. I was just, I was loving it, bro. Kicking back, drinking coffee, chopping it up, um, mm -hmm. be, being a supervisor. There was that hard line, though. Hard line meaning... I'm not going to tell them anything personal about me. And they're sure in the fuck not going to ask me because I'm going to shut that down quick. Mm -hmm. But I, I could tell when the drug addicts or the people were addicted, you can tell by their how their demeanor, how they're all sucked up. I'll be like, hey, man, you need to stay off dope. I know. Mm -hmm. I know, LT. Or they would have an overdose. Overdoses in prison are thousands, thousands. You have no idea how many inmates I've seen die and come back to life as a result of Narcan and CPR. I mean, fucking dead, flatline, mm -hmm. um, flu, vomit. And we bring them back to life. And I used to tell them, hey, dude, you died yesterday, man. You fucking died. Oh, I know, man. I know. You need to stop. You're not going to get lucky next time, man. You need to fucking stop. So, yeah, there was those conversations. I never told an inmate that I was in recovery myself. But mm -hmm. I think the way that I spoke, I think they kind of had an idea of, hey, this motherfucker knows what he's talking about. Yeah, and it and you're right. You you don't want to get and I say you, you know that, but like to some of the listeners, you do have to stay guarded. You have yeah. to build rapport, but you but you also say things for yourself because if you tell them, that person can exploit it the, Correct. the same way, you know, vice versa. Now, when you mentioned that about overdoses, and we see it on the outside, obviously, probably you see it on the inside a lot faster than you're going to see it on the outside just because of that pipeline of narcotics getting smuggled in. But when you start seeing those overdoses and you're telling, um, you know, dudes like, Hey, you died yesterday and that sort of thing. Now I kind of know the answer to this, but did they just stop like that and just said, yeah, you're right. I almost died. I'm going to stop using heroin. Or Absolutely. did they, or did they explain why they kept using? <laughs> Absolutely not. They did not yeah. just stop. They did not just stop. Um, and let me tell you something. Fentanyl hit the prison before it hit the streets. I don't know how. I don't know why. But at the time, that time frame, like I said, man, it was earlier. It was like 2010 to 2012, 13. A lot of inmates started overdosing and dying, like, like really bad. And I remember we were telling the inmates, hey, man, 
there's a bad batch that came in. You guys need to flush that shit. Get rid of it. We were telling them, and they're mm-hmm. like, hell nah, man. That's the good stuff right there. And I'm like, you guys are crazy. But that was actually fentanyl. Uh, we didn't know it. They didn't know it. Mm-hmm. Um, and, bro, the overdoses in prison far I, uh, are way farther in numbers than I think out on the streets, for sure, because you, they sit around and do dope. Yeah, I, and, and I would believe that 100%. When we saw it on the street first hitting, at least in the South, I mean, it was happening West Coast and kind of flowing up from the border and out. But when we started seeing it a lot on the street and then having sources when I was in a drug unit and they're like, no, man, like you, you basically Oxycontin hit and, you know, people are doing derivatives of Oxy at like $30 a pill. And then they can't, they can't steal enough or you know, commit enough frauds or whatever to f- feed that habit. And then the dealer says, well, I'll put you on this $10 bag, you know, or just a little balloon and then you're good to go. So then people are transitioning from that Oxycontin or, or Oxy derivatives into heroin, mainlining this stuff. And then we saw the explosion of heroin replacing a lot of those, a lot of what the market was demanding from people on the streets. And then you end up seeing people overdosing a lot faster. So that was always a thing. Like people were like, I don't do heroin because I'll overdose, you know. But then all of a sudden, when everybody started doing it, they're they're chasing what we would call a hot batch. So I'd have to, to train and tell people like your logic about overdosing is backwards from the addict. You know, the person is addicted to heroin is trying to get the batch that's going to just about kill them. And so then when someone does OD, everybody start, you see the text messages going out like, yo, this dude, this plug right here has got a hot batch. This is what you want. It's that fired and boom. And they streamline customers to the person selling right. the stuff that's cut with fentanyl. And like you said, when it first hit, a lot of people didn't know what it was. They just thought, oh, it's strong heroin. Then, then you get into the evolution where now dealers are like, well, powder coke, you know, is making a comeback and we've tapped into different markets because it's a business, you know, right now we got powder Coke getting cut with fentanyl. So we started seeing a lot of overdoses with people who were like, there's no way this, this, that we were just doing lines. You know what I mean? Like, right. Like, yeah, well, your Coke is now being cut with fentanyl because when you step on it, your profit margin goes up higher and now everybody is starting to chase this. So it's just one of those things that I always push too for, street units and gang units to talk to the prison, you know, the prison staff and to be sharing information and Intel because what's going on in the prison flows out in the street and vice versa. Yeah. And stuff, stuff is being said in prisons that can help disrupt violence on the street. Was it that same way in California? Like were like you and your staff able to share information or Intel or were there, certain units that could share intel with street units as well or was everybody walled off no no there's there's law enforcement agencies talk bro they talk Mm -hmm. um and there's different units right your average correctional officer is not going to be talking to the fbi your Mm -hmm. average correctional officer is not going to be talking to uh the local pd police department however we do have an investigative services unit with office of internal affairs uh ssu special services unit and a lot of those dudes are dual sworn in as u.s marshals to do fugitive um extradition Mm -hmm. so yeah bro they 
you know, and I, I say it on my channel, man, because you know, I, all all I do is push positivity and 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 uh, authenticity. Mm-hmm. And I say, and I'd say, there's nothing you are doing, you know, as a criminal that the feds don't fucking know about it, man. There isn't mm-hmm. a fucking conversation that you haven't had that there's not already known. Trust me. Even I mean, they're so damn good. Whatever you're thinking, <laughs> mm-hmm. and I say that because, come on, bro, you're not doing nothing new, and you know how many informants are telling us what the hell is about to happen. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, it's one of those things too, that <clears throat> like you said, you almost can read thoughts. Correct. Like I, I used to tell dudes, as soon as I'd either get them out of a car or start to lay hands on them, I read that face and I watch, you know, I'm watching their hands, but I watch those eyes. And I'm right. like, I'm like, if you think about hitting that cut, I'm on you. And they're like, bro, how you know I was going to run? Like, right. I, I've been around. I know this stuff. So if you bro. hit that cut, I'm right behind you. I'm jumping that fence, you know, so it is true. It's like that idea. And then you take that coupled with incoming information from sources. And, and I teach and explain to people, if you're going to work informants, also work them on the intel side. Ask simple questions like, like who's that scary dude in your set? Or who's the guy in right. your set that's worried about going to prison? Who's the guy in your set putting in work? Who's going to willing go out there and shoot people? Who's the the unstable person? Who's the one that... If you wake up tomorrow morning, you're going to be lucky they're in prison because they get you jammed up in all these beefs with everybody else. So it's like that idea, too. So when you're when you're working your personal experiences, you moved up through the ranks. Right. And so you said like like um, inmates begin to treat you a little different when you get that rank. Also, though, you get exposed to, I would assume, some decision making in departments or policy making or. Uh, other higher ups opinions, maybe like, Hey LT, what do you think we should do about this? Or like, we, we talk about it. Like you get, you get to see behind the curtain more as you go up in rank. And what was that experience like for you? Before I, right. Before I jump into that, man, I want to say that's a gift that you're able to identify when somebody's going to do something, man, because not Mm -hmm. everybody has that, bro. That's like a sixth sense that's going to keep you fucking alive, bro. Like you yeah. said, you're watching the eyes. And, and, and in a nutshell, we're like animals. And so mm-hmm. I had a psychologist tell me, she's like, hey, we're like animals, man. There's predators, there's prey. We can feel, we can sense when something is going to happen. Um, and I had this little trick that I would do when I would pat down an inmate. I would put mm-hmm. my hand on their uh, upper trap and I would give them a little squeeze just to let them know, hey, I'm here. You know mm-hmm. what I mean? I'm here. And if you want to elbow me or run or kick me, I'm going to fucking drop you. Yeah. You yeah. know what I mean? So it's that it's that rein, reinforcement of like, hey, but think twice before we go. Yeah. Yeah. Before we go for a ride, man. <laughs> yeah. Well, it, and it is sometimes you you could do it like that. You can do it with a look. A look. Oh, you know, I mean, and, and, and just like we could read people, uh, criminals can read people as well. Us. Mm-hmm. Right. So they know they don't go after hard targets. They go after the victims. Um, you know, and, and just by sheer luck, bro, I was never assaulted in the 16 years that I was employed by sheer luck, man. Um, you know, that, that's a fucking fluke. And I even, this is the fifth time I've ever said it. And it feels weird because I don't, I don't want to feel like I'm jinxing myself, but I'm out of the job already. So it doesn't matter. Yeah. But, uh, you talked about promoting up the ranks and getting access to behind the scenes stuff. That's where things went wrong in my career, bro. Mm. Uh, I promoted to the rank lieutenant in 2017 um i became the public information officer which is a right-hand man for the warden the pio Mm -hmm. the person that you know stands in front of the news 
I at simultaneously became our crisis response team commander, which is equivalent to our SWAT team, SWAT team commander. Okay. So I was wearing dual hats, very busy, very stressful positions during a very stressful time, the year 2020, COVID. Mm -hmm. um, and the warden at the time and the chief deputy warden at the time were corrupt bro it was foul man it was foul it was like working for hitler dude mm. People, it was foul bro it was bad man they were literally breaking the law they were unethical it, it was bad bro i was disgusted so you and at the time i gave my i had my daughter in 2018 so i had a two-year-old daughter in the year 2020 covid happened i was a lieutenant for the warden that from hell i was a crisis response team commander and then my wife's sister passed away of COVID in 2020, bro. It was mm, fucking mm. devastating blows after devastating blows, man. And this is me with sobriety under my belt, having coping tools and mechanisms. However, it became unbearable, bro. My mental health was suffering. Bad it was suffering. Because you see the climate change towards law enforcement out on the streets, right? The defund mm -hmm. the police movement. Uh, all cops are bastards. Mm-hmm. Same shit was happening in the prison, but nobody was allowed to speak up because they control you, bro. You know, the policies, the procedures, social media policies, and mm -hmm. basically you're a slave to the system, man. When they control your paycheck and, you, and your, your, because your paycheck equals your way of life. Yeah. That's how you put food on the table. That's how mm -hmm. you pay for the roof over your head. Um, mm -hmm. So I made a drastic, drastic choice to walk away from the job man um on my own free will uh i was not in trouble i was not you know i resigned and uh that did not come easy man because i had another 12 years remaining until i would have been eligible to retire which was a, the original goal retire at the age of 50 mm -hmm. but let me tell you when things got so bad bro and I, i'm not gonna dive into specifics because i'm doing my rounds bro to, to putting it out there but yeah real quick there was a captain that was incompetent. He made captain in, in nine years, which is unheard of. Basically, mm. he promoted fast through the ranks. And he was book smart, but definitely not street smart by any means. He befriended a Mexican mafia member. He made friends with the guy, which is a no-no. Mm -hmm. mm -hmm. He had him personally transferred from the, a prison up north, high desert, down south to San Diego, which I've never seen before. I've never seen an inmate favorably, personally handpicked and transferred from one prison to the next. Mm -hmm. so he gave this mexican mafia all the power in the world to run the yard as the inmate felt necessary so you can imagine all of us like wait a minute Arr! like hey mm -hmm. something bad is gonna happen you can read the writing on the wall mm -hmm. well something bad did happen in august of 2020 that mexican mafia member and all his cronies armed themselves with knives and stabbed two correctional officers bad bro they almost killed mm -hmm. them it was attempted murder mm -hmm. got stabbed in the face they took the officers' batons away, started smashing the officer's face, broke their facial bones, took the officer's pepper spray, started spraying the responding officers. It was bad, bro. So when we finally thought that that captain would be held accountable for his actions and gross negligence, um, no, they covered it up, bro. They covered it mm. up. So how the fuck are you going to cover up two attempted murders on peace officers? And let me tell you, the cover-up came from our headquarters in Sacramento. Again, I was a public information officer. I was the one that received the telephone calls and the emails 
from them telling me to refute any allegations of misconduct or wrongdoing. And I was like, wait a minute. Wait yeah. a minute. You have to understand, I'm going through this for the first time. So I'm like, refute? Why would I refute what actually is the truth? And then it mm-hmm. dawned on me, holy shit, the whole system is corrupt. If the whole system is corrupt, I want nothing to do with this fucking system, right? I joined the military and I swore in on an oath to do the right thing. I joined law enforcement and swore, swore in on an oath to do the right thing. There's no way in fucking hell I'm going to do the wrong thing and you're going to pay me for it. I'd rather be that I'm going to be unhappy. I'm out. Mm-hmm. I'm out. Yeah. So on December 1st, 2022, bro, I resigned. Damn. When you, when you, let's say like the first morning you wake up after that. Yeah. What does it feel like? Like you ETS from the army, bro. It's fucking yeah. amazing. I kind of assume that. You yeah. fucking parole from prison, bro. Yeah. <laughs> Freedom. Yeah. Dude, I, I tell you, I there was a, a corrections officer that used to work with our like gang investigators association in the area. A great guy to talk to. Just would put you at ease. Just was, was the man. Yeah. And I think he did the same thing he did about 14, 15 years. He's halfway through his career. And one of the things he used to tell me is like, you don't understand 30 years on this job is like doing 30 years in prison. Fact. You're going in day after day. You feel the same stress they do because it's, it's attack or beat. You know what I mean? Like you're, right. you're always on guard. And he's like, and after a while, it just wears you down. So, so either you get a different assignment and you get a break from some of that, or, right. you know, you, you, you've got other things going on. And this was, you know, probably 10 years ago, this was pre 2020. This was pre what you were just talking about. Like future students of history are going to look back at the year, I think 2020 and just be like, like, what was it like living through that? And I think you, me and a, and a bunch of other people who, who do share that positive mindset, that, that idea of I've put in work, I'm doing this stuff. But also, this is the re- reality of what was going on. You know, there were citizens that turned their backs on law enforcement and posted stuff on social media or openly expressed how much they hate the police when they, in fact, have never been a victim of crime, never lived in a neighborhood with gangs, never had to say goodbye to their grandson who's going to go do 30 years in prison behind gang stuff right. and leave behind kids that this grandmother now has to raise. Like, right. like the, the citizens I used to hear so much from that were the loudest or see the most on social media usually don't come from that background. Correct. I mean, it's kind of that, that common thing of, you know, like, you know, it on the, on the inmate side, I know it on the street side. It's like, even, even at that era, I had, gang informants sending me like messages or talking to me and being like, like, this is crazy. Right. And this like, like we keep it professional. We do what we do. You do what you do. But right. now all of a sudden we got like, like one blood. He's like, we got all these five fifties talking about these like non gang members, like code phrase. Like we got all these five fifties trying to burn the city down. Like, man, what is going on? Like, yeah. All yeah. of a sudden everybody is like driving into our city our main city and rioting. And when they were getting arrested, you find out they're from other cities. Like they've got nothing to do with what we had going on in our own city. And when gang members were recognizing that, now they were also exploiting it and hitting, you know, shoe right. stores and stuff. And I was getting info like, hey, they're going to hit this jewelry store. They're going to hit the shoe store. I'm like, well, we're tapped out. Like I, I appreciate the heads up, but 
it's a free for all, you know, for, for until this stuff ends, you know, but so when you, when you resign and, and I like when you said that about just the, the positive mindset, I think there's like this collective brain that we all kind of share in that sense of being the person who's putting it out there. You, you feel reward from a job when you know you're doing it right and you're doing it ethically. And then when you get exposed to other things and you say, hold on, this is not what I thought it was, or I can't be part of this anymore. I do think when you're talking about the way the brain is wired, there's just a certain percentage of us in this field that are hardwired for the positive side, probably because we've seen the negative side, probably because we've seen that what we do matters to other human beings. You know, if you were a corrections officer and you went in every day and you beat people and you were horrible to them and, you know, that sort of thing, it, it, you know, you're contributing to the problem. You were not that way. The same way I was not that way on the street. So it's this idea of like, can my mindset be so positive, so, so locked in that I can influence others to think and, and be more positive the way I am about things that are to some people insurmountable like gangs, like prison, like street violence. Like in the perfect world, if if the leaders that run the Department of Corrections in California, if they were to ask you, like Hector, lay it out, tell us what we should do right, and then they implement those changes. And I know I'm putting you on the spot, but what would you tell them? Like what are some of, the, some of just a few changes that you would say like right off the bat, boom, you've got to start doing this? So first of all, they would never ask me that. They despise right. me, right? Yeah, yeah, I mean, we know where those political type of people with mm -hmm. the agendas. Um, and before I touch on that, I want to talk about the Army 7 leadership values, man. Leadership, duty, selfless service, respect, honor, uh, integrity, personal courage. That, those are hardwired in me, man. And why I'm so passionate is because when I was young and impressionable, my military leaders were awesome, bro. Mm -hmm. And they would eventually go off to Iraq and get killed in action, mm. which fucking haunts me. So mm -hmm. in other words, I believe everything happens for a reason, man. My purpose. My purpose wasn't for me to be a prison guard, correctional officer, right? I had a bigger purpose. You know, I'm I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a I'm a man of faith. I believe God put me through all those horrible experiences, bro. As much as I hated it, kicked, screamed, and all along the way for me to be able to leave. And talk to the masses on a on a platform such as YouTube. Mm -hmm. I'm helping. I'm helping millions of people this way. So, if I could, oh my God, man! Again, I would just feel like I'm wasting air trying to tell the people. Or let me answer. Let me ask. Let me answer it like this: If I could fix CDCR, how would I fix it? Okay. Yeah. All right. I would remove all, all, yeah, all current managers. In headquarters, all I would have to. There's no other way, man. I've just been reading a book, uh, Machiavelli, The Prince, mm -hmm. and then and, and uh, damn, you'd have to wipe out that whole you know bloodline, so to say. Mm -hmm. And because it's it's corruption, bro. It's drain as, as Trump would say, drain the swamp, right? It's mm -hmm. fucking bad. <laughs> Let me tell mm -hmm. you. Um, you remove those individuals, right? And what that is gonna do, that's gonna send a message to the public, to the inmates, to the the, the, the the employees, hey, man, misconduct will not be tolerated at any level. This is a, yeah, we are a department. We had our hiccups, right? We had our, our, 
bruises or blemishes. However, today we start new. Get them the fuck out of the way. Mm-hmm. What you do is you incentivize. You have you will have to go to the local prisons. You would have to ask the troops, which supervisor do you respect? Which supervisor? Mm-hmm. Right? Nobody mm-hmm. talks to the officers, man. The, nobody talks to you boots on the grounds anymore in any law enforcement agency. And you got to understand, bro, you were a soldier. Hey, the motherfucking boots in the ground is where it's happening. Yeah. Mm-hmm. <laughs> That's mm-hmm. where the war is at, in the trenches. Mm-hmm. You're going to identify which leaders are leaders. Boom. Guess what? You just got more meritoriously promoted to fucking run some shit around here. <laughs> yeah. 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 We understand you don't know the budget wise. We understand you don't know, you know, yeah. the, the how to publicly talk to people. But don't worry about it, man. We can iron out those kinks. We'll send you some courses on how to publicly speak and, yeah. you know, and crunch numbers. But right mm-hmm. now we need to save lives. <laughs> you need leadership, right? You like, need that's, leadership, like, that's what bro. you're saying. Yeah. So, I, yeah. I, I will say, and you're right. I was 17. I, when I was at Fort Benning and I was fortunate to have incredible drill sergeants, right? Mean as hell, but I'm telling you, like I knew, okay, they're dogging me out. But when I leave here, I'll right. be good to go. I had great chain of command my entire time. And you know, I did four years in infantry and loved it. But I'll say when I was a homicide detective, one of the main things I would push is the patrol officers. Like I would walk over, put my hand on their shoulder and say, you know, this young man's dead. Uh, what do you know about it? Ooh, Who are your sources? Like, give yeah. me some, give me the lay of land because this is your area of operation. This is your beat. You patrol here every day. And sometimes officers will have great information. Sometimes they wouldn't. And I would just encourage them, like, look, own your plot of land. Fact. Like, know the store clerks, know your, your most, you know, repeat offenders. Like, if this person's got beef with this person and they're out in the street fighting and everybody's rooting them on, like I need to know who who are the people fight or who are the people witnessing that. Like even describe them. Like talk to your people. Find out from the grandparents. Like, and so when you empower, like you said, the boots on the ground, those people that are in those positions then start to understand I'm in control of my own career choices. Facts. And if if a leader expects this out of me, as I move up through the rank, I expect the same from patrol officers and that sort of thing. So, so you're right. I, I think across the board, if we were to study most of corrections and police departments, there is going to be a void of certain types of leadership. And it's that type, like that type to have the confidence to say, while, while, you know, you know, Lieutenant, a Sergeant, whatever the person on the ground can come up with the best ideas. Like when you're looking at something and you're going, man, how are we going to revamp this block or this, this area when we're moving inmates from one location to another, we've been doing it the same way for X number of years. Why are we not changing it? But you can't change it if you're sitting behind a desk or if you're a higher ranking um, in a higher ranking position, when the person who's transporting is like, look, I've always thought it was ludicrous that we were doing it this way. <laughs> you know, so basically it's toxic leadership, bro. Toxic yeah. leadership. The beta males have taken over, right? We don't even have to reinvent the wheel. All we have to do is go back to the basics. Police 101, just like mm-hmm. how you stated. The downfall with that is so many people with experience like yourself and myself mm-hmm. have left, have left in the, in the droves, man, just vanished mm-hmm. because they wanted no part of what had transpired you would just have to go back to the basics also rank you know what i loved about the military that our sergeants would take off their blouse and go meet you out back the building and beat your fucking ass <laughs> right <laughs> yeah because rank means nothing right um, 
And yeah. that is a problem in the California Department of Corrections. And you'll even have sergeants that put on the stripes and all of a sudden they change. They think they're God. You have yeah. lieutenants or, or mm -hmm. a cap at the captain level and above. It is psychotic, narcissistic, egotistical, right? I'm mm -hmm. telling you the way they used to belittle, talk down to me, put me under investigation for insubordination when I was never insubordinate. I would solely mm -hmm. tell them, hey, this is not a good idea because this is going to happen. Oh, mm -hmm. you're insubordinate. I'm putting you under investigation. Like, that's not insubordination. That's right. my fucking job. Yeah, and it's also, it's your job to help guide a leader right. to not run us into a wall. You know what I mean? Like you, you're leading us into an ambush or you're leading us in, you know, hey, so, let's do something different here. It's, and, it's a simple suggestion. And point in case, bro, that's why I left. That's why I speak the way I do. I'm passionate. Anybody who wants to listen, anybody who wants to learn how I was taught, right? None of this is Hector's fucking design. Hector didn't create this. I was taught by men that are no longer here because mm -hmm. they sacrificed it all. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I, I want to say it. I I retired at a lieutenant's rank as well. I was over uh, violent crime, so I had multiple units, homicide, aggravated assault, robbery. Worked with incredible people, had a good chain of command. So when I retired, I retired very, very happy. Can't say it was always like that through the years. And it is true. The leadership, you got to have solid leadership. And I, I was fortunate on the way out. I felt like, okay, the ship is really turning for this department. And that potentially down the road, there's going to be a resurgence of that compassionate crime fighter, you know, that I kind of came up through the ranks with. But I'm going to switch gears for a second, man. One of the more important things in my life has always been music and talking to people and that sort of thing everybody's different but i am curious man you mentioned like skating and listening to disturbed is there anything that either just like you just love like man i love listening to this or any type of music that you would push or talk about anything like that you ready for this bro yeah emo music emo man i'm okay. talking about blink 182 i'm talking about like hawthorne heights uh rufio you found glory, all American rejects. And the way I, the reason I say that, because that's when I was 17 years old. That's when those mm -hmm. uh, uh, taking back Sunday, the Ataris, that's when uh, that's when I was innocent. That's when I, mm -hmm. you know, that's when I was new to the whole dating girls and chasing them. And, you know, I, I was funny, the class clown. And, mm -hmm. and and when I joined the army and all the trauma I experienced, that that old Hector died. But since mm -hmm. I have left the department. Bro, I've got I've gained my sense of humor again. I find myself listening yeah. to Newfound Glory again, and it's like hell yeah, man! I want to go back. And mentally, uh, I, 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 the '90s was a good age uh, time frame for me, bro. And I'm just trying to relive that as best as I can because I was a happy there, dude. I'm, I'm I'm glad you found it, and I'm glad that when you listen to music, it does the same thing for you. It does for me, and I think I think for a lot of other people when they listen to this, if they don't remember that era or were not into that music. And I'll shoot you some of the comments. People will actually go now because they can do it on Spotify or anything like that, streaming. And they'll listen to like Newfound Glory or something. And they'll, yeah. and they'll hit me up and go, yeah, Hector put me on something pretty cool, man. I'm going to go back and check this out or whatever. So right, it's good to go. Well, look, man, I appreciate your time today. I know you're on a time crunch. In the future, I'd love to, to bring you back on and we yeah, actually maybe. dive into some, some very in-depth stuff about what goes on behind the wall. Everybody kind of gets a picture of Hector Bravo now 
I want y'all to go check out his stuff, check out his YouTube channel, reach out to him on Instagram. He's the real deal. He's legit. Man, I appreciate you coming out, buddy. Thank you, brother. Thank you. Yes, sir. Disruptors out.